Good morning, everyone. Goodness. How are we this morning? Are we good? Good. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. We've got a lot to do, and, um, and uh, yeah, let's just pray. So, Jesus, we say thank you for being in this space. We say, say thank you for opportunities to be challenged, to be encouraged. Say thank you for a day that is a gift that you've given us. And as we stand here, we have options. We've got choices. We've got decisions. So I pray that today, we, as we gather, as we open up your word, that we would just be open to what your text has to say to us, what your spirit has to say to us. May our hearts be open. May our hands be open. May our eyes be open. May we see you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are starting to wind down this series called Fake Belief, where we are looking at First John and sort of juxtaposing these ideas of truth and falsehood through uh, several different subjects and categories. Today we get to look at the idea of truth and false spirits and truth and false prophets. Um, I do want to say, as I uh, began to really sit and pray on this over the last couple of weeks and read and study and pray and sit and pray and watch uh, teachings and things like that, uh, two things sort of showed up. One is that what we're going to do this morning was not where I thought this was going to go. Um, but in the process of praying and studying, uh, the two things that showed up in my life, one was just this idea of gratitude, and this other one was this idea of conviction. And as I prayed and studied and wrote and thought and prayed and studied and wrote, I couldn't shake these two things, this incredible beauty of gratitude and this incredible challenge, this incredible conviction. And so this morning, I, I just I want to simply read the text and do my best to sort of explain it. I want to raise a question from the text that I think John is asking of its original hearers, and I want to ask the same question to us today. And then I just want to contemplate the reality of that. And so let's just jump in. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says this. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So let's just stop right there. John begins with this word, dear friends. In the original Greek, it is this word, agapetas. Now, if you've been in and around church for any period of time, you may have heard people talk about the three Greek words for love. There's this word eros, and that has to do with um, intimate love between lovers, erotic love. There's this word philio or philia, which is brotherly love. Think of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, philia. But the third Greek word for love is this word agape or agape. And this is uh, often defined as unconditional love. The first words in this passage in Greek is not dear friends, it's agapetas. John who is a disciple of Jesus, who is writing about 50, 60 years after the death of Jesus, is writing to churches uh, about high support and high challenge. 
And the previous section to this is a section on love and God's endless love for us. The section after this is another section on love. But John parks right in the middle this challenge. It's as if the passage reads, support, 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 God loves you. Challenge. Support, 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 remember God loves you. And so when he, in the middle, towards the end of this book, he stops and he identifies who this is really for. This is for those who are loved by God. And he gives his hearers, his readers, a title. He gives them a way to be identified in the world. He, John is saying, God is telling me to tell you that who you are is that you are the beloved of God. The literal translation of this word is beloved. You are the beloved of God. That is your identity. That is how God sees you. And that is the name that God calls you. You are the love of God. Now for some of us, that's a breath of fresh air. For some of us walking in the room this morning, that's what we need to hear this morning. Church is over. Amen. Let's go home. I needed to hear that. But since I get paid by the word, you're going to have to hang in with me for a few more minutes. <laughs> but some of us, that's exactly what we needed to hear. I need to be reminded that when God looks down on me, he sees love. He sees that I am his love. He sees Christ in me. And so when he sees me, engages me, interacts with me, he does so because I am his love. There's a theologian, pastor named Gary Edmonds. He now runs this gigantic organization that feeds the hungry. He said, this agape love is not based on merit of the person love, but rather unconditional and based on them as an image bearer of Christ. This love is kind and generous. It continues to give even when the other is unkind, unresponsive, or even unworthy. It only desires good things for the other, and it is compassionate. This is what God sees when he sees you. And this is the love that God gives to you all the time. It is kind and compassionate and it is good and it is hopeful and it's healthy and it lasts forever. And when God sees you, he sees the work of Christ in you. He sees the spirit of himself in you. And when he sees you, there's compassion and love and kindness. And this is how God sees you. And before we even continue in the passage, church, you are the beloved of God. This world has become so volatile, and language has become a weapon, and words are used constantly to belittle and to hurt, to cause fear and to cause pain. Words are used as weapons to tell you who you are and what category you belong to and your value and your dignity. And God said, you are my beloved And before John gives us this challenge, he's given us a reminder of our identity. You are the beloved of God. Now, some might hear this and feel a little squishy about this language, that God is my Father and I am his beloved, and how do I interact with this language? It feels a little distant or uncomfortable or not, uh, oh, I don't know, what's the right word? 
rugged enough. It feels too sweet and emotional and too intimate. Yes. This book was written 2,000 years ago, and your identity is you are the beloved. That is who you are. And culture may want to create all kinds of categories of masculinity, but when God sees you, he sees you as love. And we ought never, ever to forget that. So as we enter in and we talk about this word beloved this morning, I want you to feel it. Let it rain on you. Let it fall on you. And if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, so be it. But know that the voice of God, the spirit of God that is in this room is whispering into your ear right now. I love you. I love you. I love you. You are my beloved. This is our identity. This is our identity. A while back, uh, our small group read this book. It's really little. Let me encourage you non-readers. There are books out there that don't have 6,000 pages. It's called The Furious Longing of God. It's written by a guy named Brennan Manning. And Brennan Manning wrote this based on, he went on a 30-day silent retreat back in 1978. A 30-day silent retreat. I'm not sure I'm up for like a 30-second silent retreat, let alone a 30-day silent retreat. And when he went on his retreat, his spiritual director gave him this verse to meditate on. This is from Song of Solomon. Um, I think we have that one. Did we put that one up there? It's Song of Solomon uh, 710. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And so for 30 days, he spent his whole time meditating on this verse. I am my beloved's, and his desire is, my, is for me. And he writes this book, and, and it's, uh, he, he, this, he's, the whole thing is about how we need to become very aware and clear and comfortable with the idea that we are the beloved. And he's got this great quote, and I just want to read this with us. It says, I believe his desire for you and for me can be des- best described as a furious longing. And this longing is beyond our wildest desires, our hopes, our hopelessness, our rectitude, or our wickedness. It is neither cornered by sweet talk nor gentle persuasion. The furious longing is not to be reduced to a thing or a grand ideal. It is not to be reduced to a plaything, a caged songbird for the amusement of a child. It can't be tamed or boxed or captivated or housebroken or temple broken. It is simply and startling Jesus, the effulgence of the Father's love. I had no idea what effulgence meant. Did you guys see those eight kids crush the spelling bee this week? Not only did I not know what effulgence was, I had to find it on an online dictionary that had an audio version of it, so I didn't say it wrong. Everybody say effulgence. Yeah, it's a risky word. <laughs> it means radiant or brightness or shining. The furious longing of God is simply and startling Jesus, the radiance of God's love. You who are in Christ and Christ who is in you, you are the beloved of God and his overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love is for you. And I need you to hear that before we even jump into the rest of the text. You are the beloved of God. Let's go back to the text. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God or not. There are lots of false prophets in the world, and this is how you recognize the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus came in the flesh, true. If they don't acknowledge Jesus came in the flesh, false. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and is now even in the world. So, I affirm and believe that there is a very, very real world 
in our existence that we often refer to as the spiritual world, which is about spirits. And spirits that are from God are called angels, and spirits of the enemy, the evil one, are called demons. I believe it's very real. Ephesians 6 reminds us of this in the Bible. It's not something that I just came up with, but our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against powers of dark in the world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I believe it. I believe it is as real as anything that we can taste or touch or feel. I believe that. But if we go back to the text, I want us to see that there's an interaction and interplay between the word spirit and prophets. That in this context, John is saying that spirits are somehow attached to prophets. And so we have to ask ourselves, does that mean that that spirit, um, are we talking about like possession? Or are we talking about something a little bit more external? Well, later in the passage we'll read, first it says, don't believe every spirit, because there are false prophets in the world. But then he goes on to say, They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So John is somehow connecting this idea that spirits and prophets in this context are interchangeable. So essentially what he's saying is that there are all kinds of words, teachings, ideas that are out there in the world. And we need words, ideas, and teachings to help us on this journey called life. And the world desires it, needs it, goes after it because we want to know What does it mean for us to be alive and to be real and to be loved and be known? We want to know right from wrong. We want to know what's the best step forward. And so there are all kinds of teachings, words, and ideas out there, all kinds of spirits. And John says, we're aware of that. It's not going away in the church. Come to the light. Avoid the darkness. And in the light are the spirits about the true God. There's these other words, ideas, and spirits that are false. And the litmus test to decide whether or not it's true or false is simply this. Did Jesus come in the flesh? That's maybe an odd way to decide the litmus test of whether or not a false teacher or a true teacher is determined by whether or not their theology of understanding whether Jesus came in the flesh or not. Now remember, a couple weeks ago when I taught on 1 John 2, we talked about this idea called Gnosticism, which is a big, general, wide difficult-to-understand worldview, and within it, there's a sect called Docetism. And Docetism was this uh, Roman teaching that said uh, matter is evil, flesh is evil, uh, the gods, which are really, really, really far away, want nothing to do with flesh, want nothing to do with matter, want nothing to do with the world. Nothing created or made or in the flesh can be saved. And docetism, which comes from the Greek word to appear, said that Jesus really never came in the flesh. He only appeared to be human. And so it denied the humanity of Jesus. Not the divinity, but the humanity. And this teaching is creeping into the church. And John is recognizing it. And he said, listen, there are true teachings and false teachings out there. And you want to know what is true? If the doctrine and theology says that Jesus came in the flesh... He's fully human. He's also saying he's fully de- deity. He's fully divine, but they're not arguing against that. Just whether or not he's fully human. That determines whether or not the teaching is true or not. Is Jesus who we claim to be? Is he God and is he man? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, that's kind of interesting. Why would they deny Jesus' humanity? It's not really the argument about what people say about Jesus today. The world has changed. The idea now is that Jesus may have been a great teacher, but certainly he wasn't God. But back then, it was reversed. 
And John is recognizing if there's no flesh, no humanity, there's no incarnation. And the incarnation matters because the incarnation tells us that God came to be with us. The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. If there's no incarnation, then, G- then God doesn't understand us. Hebrews says that he, Jesus was tempted in every way, but he didn't sin, which means he understands everything that we think, and that matters. He understands everything that we are. If Jesus doesn't come in the flesh, then he doesn't come in the mind. And the incarnation matters because Jesus identifies with us, body, mind, and soul. So there is salvation, a total work of salvation. The incarnation matters because God desires constantly to reveal himself to us. Without the flesh, there is no Christ. That Christ is the Antichrist. It's interesting um, when it says this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The word the doesn't appear. There's no definite article. It just says this is the spirit of an Antichrist. There are people in the world right now that read newspaper clippings trying to find the Antichrist. Like, who is it? Maybe it's Nick Saban, which probably is, you know. You know, who knows who it is? Maybe it's this, maybe it's Obama, maybe it's, we read this up. No, no, you hear what it says? The Antichrist, this, this is a spirit of an Antichrist, which is heard is coming. And oh, by the way, it's already in the world. There's really no need to look at the newspaper clippings to see if the Antichrist is coming. The spirit of evil and brokenness is in the world. And we know that. And we know that. Why is this important? Because the threat to the early churches was Jesus, would Jesus be divided? Would Jesus be divided? We have to come back to that question. That is going to be our lament. Is Christ divided? Let's go back to the text. John 4 finishes this way. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, them meaning the false teachers and their spirits, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So once again, he starts with a, with a, a, a statement of identifying. First, you are the beloved, and then he says this, you are a child. You are a child. It is not the use of the word children that is degrading. It's not the use of the word children that is demeaning. It's not, the, it's, it's not trying to make you little or small or unimportant. It is a loving term of endearment from a father or a mother to a child. It is saying you are a child. And not just a child. You, dear children, are a child from God. And because You are from God, and because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is the greatest spirit of all these false spirits, is in you, you are actually conquerors and victors in life because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Not only are you the beloved, you are the beloved child. You are the beloved son and daughter of the king of the universe. And he loves you like a good father. And he cares for you like a good father. And he gives you everything that he has. Everything that he has. Romans 8 This is uh, Eugene Peterson's brilliant and beautiful translation. This resurrection life because Christ is in you. 
that you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is an adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is. He's God. He's Father. And we know who we are, Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us. And I think a lot of us think God is up there with that big wagging finger telling us how angry he is at us or how disappointed he is or how we're not good enough. And God is staring at us from a distance, wagging his finger, shaking his head, crossing his arms, turning his back because you are a screw-up. And Paul says, no, we know what's getting to come to us because Christ is in us. We get an unbelievable inheritance. Everything that's the Father's is ours. Everything that's the Father's is ours. Everything that the Father has, he gives to us. All he's ever had is for us. See, John's challenging about us about what we read and what we study and what we learn and what we embrace and what, we, what, we, what we're drawn to. But he's saying, yeah, those words, those teachings, they're out there. But do you know what's even more important than that? Is that you know firmly who you are. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. And we need to be reminded of who we truly are. We need to be reminded of who we are. We are the beloved child. We belong to Christ Christ belongs to us. We are the beloved children of God, our good Father. Not only are we the beloved child, we then collectively make up the beloved family. We are part of a beloved family. And you are my beloved sister. You're my beloved brother. And we are called to be unified in such a way. Now let's go back to the text and finish. We've got a few more things to say and then we'll start winding down. Uh, chapter 4, verse, let's do 4 through 6. It should be the next slide or next two slides maybe. They are from the world, verse 5. They speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. But we're from God and whoever knows God listens to us but whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And the question I think that John is asking his readers, which I think is a relevant question to us, is, is asking us, where do we go to know who God is? Where can we go? There's lots of teachings, lots of voices, lots of ideas, lots of uh, um, books and videos and films and TV shows and news channels and all that that want to tell us who we are and tell us what's true. But where can we go to know who God is? How do we, how do we know this? How can we differentiate this? I'll just give you a few things, a couple of them. One... Um, uh, God specifically revealed himself in two places. One was in the person of Jesus. When Jesus walked the earth for 33 years, that was a specific revelation of God. He was telling the world, this is me in the flesh. And then we have this book. And we trust that the Holy Spirit has been integrating with human authors for thousands of years to put this book together, 66 books across this giant span. The Old Testament of the story of God's love for Israel. The New Testament, God's story for all through Christ. 
And we believe that when we open up this book, because the Holy Spirit was involved in writing this book with human offers, that this book is alive and active and has something to say. And we believe that this book, at the end of the day, what is the Bible? It is a book in which God reveals himself to his children. This book is all about God telling us who he is and telling us who we are and telling us our need for God and are telling us the love that God shows in Christ Jesus. And the scriptures over and over remind us that this book is alive and good and that Jesus is there asking us, inviting us in, come to me, all you who are tired. Come to me who carry heavy burdens. Come to me, knock, the door, knock on the door, open it, let me in. There's a passage in Corinthians that it even says, whoever loves God is known by God. And so there's this idea that God wants to be known. Another way that we know about God is that we pray. And we have these deep spiritual conversations, the Holy Spirit in us. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit is in us and he's, he's speaking with us and he's finding words for us and he's pointing us back to Jesus. And there's this conversation and we trust that something magical and mysterious and spiritual happens when we talk to God and God reveals himself through that. God reveals himself to us in community. We don't do this alone. There's a great passage in Acts chapter 15 where the church is divided on whether or not Gentile men need to be circumcised to become followers of Jesus, and everybody in the room said amen because that's a terrible idea, right? But Jews had to be circumcised uh, uh, to be following Yahweh, but when the message went out to the Gentiles and they weren't, they were like, all right, so we got an issue here. We're sharing the gospel with these grown men who have never gone through this uh, thing. If you guys don't know what that is, you can ask your parents later. Don't look it up. It's really terrible. And uh, uh, I totally don't know where I was at. Uh, <laughs> something about circumcision, all right? And so they all get back together, and they're having this council meeting, and Paul, who's out working with the Gentiles, and Peter, and James, and Bar- the rest that are, like, in the city, they're having this debate, what should we do? So they come together in community, and they talk through it together in community, and they raise theological concerns, and they pray about it, and the passage in, in Acts 15 says, and they listen carefully to each other, and at the end of it, they came out with the right answer. It's not necessary. There is no more shedding of blood. Christ did it once and for all. And the Gentile world said, thank you. (laughs) We do it in community. That's why we have elders in this church. We don't do it alone. The first job of an elder is to discern the mind of Christ. That is a holy, weighty idea. They don't do it alone. They do it in community. It's so beautiful. And then there's other ways that we learn about God. We just learn about God naturally, like just through everyday stuff, right? I believe that God generally reveals himself, maybe not in specific details, but in general ways, just like in creation. Have you ever watched the sun set over the Grand Canyon? Have you ever seen uh, the Tetons reflect on Jenny Lake and the Grand Tetons? Have you ever seen a child born? All right, let's, let's call a timeout on that. Have you ever seen your child born? You remember when your parents had to go to, like, birthing classes and you had to watch that film that looked like it was shot in, like, the 40s? And um, you're like, this is the worst thing ever, right? This is like, I'm going to be scarred by this, right? And then you go into the delivery room and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is not that beautiful image when everybody says it's the most beautiful moment you'll ever have in your life. And you're like, everybody's like, that is the greatest moment is when my child was born. And you're in there and you're like, you're just trying to muster the energy to say, yeah, I'm with you because I want to repeat that because I don't want to be the guy that comes out and goes, oh, that was bizarre. Uh, The things that I saw, the things that I smelled. So 
right here. The, like it was, there's a lot going on. And it, some of you did C-sections. And then like there's this stuff on a table like next to the child. And I remember when, uh, when our first child was born. And uh, it was a long, long labor. I was totally exhausted at the end of it. And, uh, and I wanted to see this child, this beautiful little girl. And my doctor was so great. He said, Mike, you don't have a little girl. You have a daughter. And I'm like bawling. And, uh, and I'm trying to go over and watch it. He goes, he goes do you want to hold it? And I was like, yeah. And when I walked over, he had the placenta and not the baby. And he was trying to explain to me the biology of what was happening. I was like, you know, like, (laughs) this is the worst thing in the world. And we were in Ohio. Some friends asked Anne to join them in the birthing room for a a birth of a child. And I was like, Anne, I think the Lord is saying, no, that is the worst decision that you can make. (laughs) What are you doing? But yet in the midst even of watching your child being born, there's something um, wholly chaotic and wholly beautiful at the same time. In the passage in Genesis 1 when it says that uh, in the beginning God created and his spirit, his breath, hovered over the chaos of the earth. The Hebrew word for hovered is the word for a bird um, of prey who sits on the eggs of her young and protects them as the chaos forms underneath and breaks through. That spirit is not far. That spirit is near. And it is wholly chaotic and wholly beautiful at the same time. God wants to be revealed. He is in the nature of revelation. He wants us to know who he is. And he wants us to know who we are. The beloved. But here's the question. Is Christ divided? Am I a divider of Jesus? Are you a divider of Jesus? I prayed for weeks about this. I was driving to work last week, Tuesday, and, uh, and I'm making my way to work, and I live in South Charlotte, make my way up, and, uh, and I'm praying in the car, all right, God, it's sermon week, application, I think the question is, is Christ divided? I need something. Tell me, what do I do? What's the word? How do I say it? What's the application? What, where is my congregation dividing Christ? You know, <laughs> not me. Where are they? What do they need to hear? And as I'm praying this out loud, um, this uh, driver, we'll call that person in front of me, um, decides that three or four lanes at 45 miles an hour is totally acceptable about where do I go? right? Do I get off here? Do I get off here? And I'm like, God, am I a divider? Why is this person so stupid? <laughs> Time out. We'll get back to you in a minute, God. But like, what are you doing, right? And then like would make his way. And then I was, then I was like, I had that moment. I was like, oh, they're not from here. They're probably from Ohio or something, you know, and they, and they don't. <laughs> Thank you, Mikey. There you go. And they probably just are confused, you know. They, they still have like AAA maps, you know, in the car. They don't understand their phone and they don't trust their phone, you know, and and so, uh, they're, so the, this guy, though, and then he, then he finally, and I have to get off on 45, on a 77, and literally he's entering the highway at like 31 miles an hour, and there's nowhere to go, and the horn's behind me honking. I was like, why is this driver so stupid? I'll get back to you in a minute. God, I got to yell at this guy, you know. And then, so then I drive, and I pass him, and I give him that look that only says, 
you know what it means, you know, and I drive up, and then I get off at Remount, and I get to the stop sign, and there's a, there's a work construction truck, and there's this split, and there's a stop sign, there's nowhere to go, and stuff was falling out of the rig, so they got out to, to tie it down, and instead of saying, oh, that's safe and kind for humanity, that you would tie down your ladders and stuff, I'm like, why are you guys so stupid that you didn't tie it down the first place when you left, right? I'll get back to you in a minute, God, like, I'm good, but these people are ridiculous, so I get to church, and I start reading and studying passages of Scripture about true spirits and false spirits. <laughs> and I read this one about true spirits and false spirits from the book of Ephesians. Then we will no longer be babies, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their disciples scheming. I'm like, yes! Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is the Christ. From Christ, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And then the Lord said to me, Mike, you are a divider. Because Christ is the head of the body, and you are constantly separating Christ. Not necessarily his humanity and divinity from himself, but you are separating Christ from your community. You're separating Christ from people. The scriptures say that Christ is the head of the body, and if that's true, then I divide Christ every time I build dividing walls of separation. I'm not a unifier of children made in the image of God, but I'm a divider. And since I don't have divine insight of who's in the family and who's out, I divide Christ all the time when I make determinations who is worthy to be called a beloved child. I divide Christ every time I assign value to someone other than an image bearer of the God of creation. I divide Christ every time I deny dignity based on race, color, gender, creed, or political affiliation. I divide Christ every time. I'm not an inviter into hope, into the light, but I'm a divider and I exclude people and I tell them to stand in the darkness. I'm a divider when I'm not compassionate. The scripture says that Christ is the head of the body, so I divide Christ every time I speak wrongly against you in this community. Every time I cut somebody down in malice or slander or false criticism, I divide Christ every time in that act because you, the beloved children of God, are not worthy in my eyes. Every time I ignore you on purpose, or by mistake, or I avoid you, or I bring harm to you, I divide this body. Scripture says that Christ is the head of the body, and if that's true, then I divide Christ every time my thoughts wander into the darkness and destroy, and my destruction is not physical harm, but it's denial. Maybe not the denial of the humanity or divinity of Jesus, but I deny you. I divide because I separate. I break Christ down into little pieces, and I claim the pieces that are okay for me, and I deny the rest to you. I ignore the ones that are challenging my life, and I only want the ones ones that support me. I am a divider. Every time I speak against you, I divide. Words are weapons, and they're being used to destroy us. God said, there are so many false voices out there. But you are the beloved child, and he who is in you is greater than the world. So stop and be be okay. The world will know that you belong to Jesus because the way that you love one another, not the way that you divide one another. And I'll tell you what, our brothers and sisters out there in the world that hate the church and hate God, they hate it because of the division that we have within the body. This is our lament, folks. So put everything down off your books, pens, all that. And we're going to stop and we're just going to pray this prayer. Christ, How do I divide you? Jesus' first sermon in the book of Matthew was repent. 
for God's kingdom is right now. His first sermon was repent. I'm in a season of repentance and how I divide Christ. I want you to do the same with me now. Just take a few minutes and sit on this question. Christ divided. Repent for God's world is right now. Do not be afraid of the world, Jesus said, because I've overcome the world. Do not be afraid of me, be in awe of me, the scriptures teach. That God has come near and his nearness is for our good. And the beauty of God and Jesus and the Spirit is that while we were sinners, he died for us. And while we sin, he forgives us. Because he who is in us is greater than it which is in the world. And that which is in us is a resurrected Jesus. Is Christ divided? Or is Christ a unifier? So God, we pray our lament, how are we dividing you? How are we dividing you? Correct us, challenge us. In the name of love, we ask, we beg and beseech, show up in compassion and kindness and transform us more and more into the image of Jesus and less into the image of the world. Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org or come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.